Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. It's always a gamble on these holiday weekends whether we're going to have 20 people here or 100 because half of the time it seems like everyone's family comes to them and the other half of the time it seems like everyone goes to family. So it's good to see you and family and we miss those who are with family elsewhere. Well, our passage this morning um, is, which is also the assigned lectionary passage being preached in churches all over the world this morning, is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's the story of David's desire to build a temple for God. And while it's not your typical Advent passage in that it's not from John or Luke and isn't full of shepherds and angels keeping watch, um, it is every bit an Advent passage. Because on the eve of the day that we celebrate God coming to us as a baby born in a stable, these verses invite us to pull back for a moment from the tizzy of wrapping presents and baking. My mom was baking at like 10 o'clock last night and I was lying in bed so hungry. There is lovely baking and wrapping that happens this time of year, but this passage invites us to pull back and to reflect on the earth-shattering reality that the God of the universe the God who thought up narwhals, the God who keeps the planets from crashing together out there in space, has chosen to put on flesh and move into the neighborhood. As you were singing that song, I just was pondering for a moment the fact that um, living 2,000-some years removed from the actual instance, um, I think it's easy for us to dwell and not really reflect on the craziness of the, these kind of two realities that we experience in Christmas. The God of the universe being born into a stable. Being born. Being pushed out of a woman's body and laid in a feeding trough. And so this morning we have the chance to reflect a little bit and to sit and to marvel at the two of those things coinciding in the God that we worship. So a little bit about where we're at when we come to this passage. This book of 2 Samuel is the story of David's reign as king over Israel. He was Israel's greatest king. And as we read today's passage in chapter 7, we pick up relatively early on in the story. David has just become king, and after a fairly tumultuous beginning to his reign, he has consolidated power in Jerusalem and is living there in an opulent royal palace, a palace made of cedar. And as the dust settles, David begins to reflect. And that's where we're going to pick up reading today. It's a little bit of a long passage, so feel free to, um, to just sit back and, and listen. After the king was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. And then skipping down a little bit. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now this talk of an eternal kingdom here at the end is a prophecy that we know is fulfilled in Jesus' coming, born in a manger. Well, let's pray as we begin to explore this passage. Heavenly Father, God of the universe, born in a stable. As we reflect this morning on these words from 2 Samuel, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear from you. Help us to be curious, to ask questions about your nature and the nature of your coming and what that means for us today. We are so grateful, Lord, that you have chosen to dwell in humble places. Amen. So in this passage, we see that David wants to build a temple for God. We don't know exactly why. It doesn't delve into the whys here. Perhaps it was out of uh, gratitude for all that God has done for him. After all, David would be nothing more than a shepherd if it weren't for God. Perhaps because David feels awkward living in a great palace. He wants to build the God who has given him that palace, one of equal grandeur. Or perhaps David simply wants to make himself look good by doing something for God. We don't know why. We just know that he wants to do this. But God tells him no. In fact, he's crystal clear in these words to the prophet Nathan that he has never wanted to dwell within four walls. God wants to be on the move, to be able to be with his people wherever they are. And God is clear here that it's not up to David, it's not up to Israel, it's not up to us to make a place for him anyway. It's God who makes a place for Israel, who leads them to it through the wilderness, parting the seas, raining down food from heaven. It's God who builds David's house, who establishes his kingdom as an everlasting kingdom. And it's God who makes the place for us. And we sometimes allow ourselves to feel badly that we don't do more to make space for God in the various places of our lives. We often feel guilty, perhaps, um, in our interactions at work, that that we feel awkward and we don't exactly know how to bring our faith into our workplace, into our interactions with neighbors who don't share our faith, family members. But God is crystal clear here in these verses that he is not like a genie who depends on us to rub his lamp and chant some magic words to make him appear. 
God is with us wherever we go. In fact, he has gone ahead of us into those places. He is already in your workplace before you ever stepped foot into it. God is with us wherever we go, simply because that is who God is. But we can struggle to embrace that reality, can't we? God feels real. He feels present at certain places in our life, perhaps at church, perhaps in our quiet times over a cup of coffee early in the morning or late at night. God feels present there. But we struggle to embrace and feel the truth that God is as active and alive in other parts of our life, the parts that we might label secular. Well, why is this? Just making sure I know where I am in space here. Why is this? How has this become such a pervasive problem that Fuller Seminary has an entire program devoted to helping professionals figure out how to integrate their faith in their work? Why is this such a thing? Well, for many of who have grown up in the church, a significant part of that experience for many of us has been the instilling of a strong distrust for the world. And how this has played out is probably different depending on where you grew up. Maybe you were taught to distrust Hollywood, to avoid movies. Maybe your parents encouraged you towards Christian music instead of secular rock and roll. Maybe you went to a college where dancing or drinking or both were prohibited. But regardless of how it manifested itself, many of us have grown up in the church and have been taught to fear the world, to engage it with caution. Because if we aren't careful, if we let our guard down, we might be tempted to sin. Well, the natural result of this distrust of culture, of the world, has been a circling of the wagons, right? A banding together of Christians huddling in church buildings that resemble fortresses for protection from the big bad world. And of course, God is in the church because God is everywhere. And so inevitably, over time, because Christians spend so much time in the church, of course, we begin to accumulate spiritual experiences within those four walls. And so we begin to assume that this must be because this is the only place that God is, which simply strengthens the fortress, reinforcing our fear-based tendency to huddle together with other believers at church. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the church is bad, and I'm not saying that outreach is not happening. During this same era that we all live in, there has been an equally strong conviction that we as Christians are called to be making disciples, to love God and our neighbor. And so saving the world, saving our neighbors has become a cause. And this has given us incredible purpose. It's given us endless projects, endless things to do, and we love doing stuff. Just like David wanted to build God a temple. But because of this deeply ingrained distrust of the world that we carry with us, this engagement with the world, this evangelism, has tended to look either very passive, like reader boards inviting people to church, 
or like these brief forays out into enemy territory, quickly then again retreating back inside the fortress, rather than anything like true engagement with our neighbor. Well, God's words to the prophet Nathan here in 2 Samuel 7 ought to rattle us then. Because God makes it very clear that if we spend all of our time hanging out at church, chances are good that we are missing much of the exciting, world-changing stuff that God is doing out there in the world all the time. I love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there is a frequent refrain among the animals of Narnia that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. God is and has always been on the move, out in the world, whether or not his church has been. Because you see, earlier on I used the word secular. But for God, there is no distinction between secular and sacred. If you've read Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Alter in the World, you probably have recognized some of this kind of history of the church that I've kind of gone through quickly. And in that book, it's a great book, she says that human beings may separate things, there we go, may separate things into as many piles as we wish, separating spirit from flesh, sacred from secular, church from world, but we should not be surprised when God does not recognize the distinctions that we make between the two. God does not see a distinction between sacred and secular. In fact, when Jesus is asked to talk about the nature of God, he turns to the lilies of the field. He turns to women needing bread. He turns to workers waiting in line for their paycheck. The truth is that we can learn as much about God from business deals going bad as we can from reading the books of the Bible in order. Sorry, reciting the books of the Bible in order. Reading the books of the Bible, we probably can learn a lot from. <laughs> we can learn much, as much about God from a love affair or a wildflower as we can from knowing the Ten Commandments. So you see, God does not need a temple because all of creation is his home. He doesn't need a sanctuary because he's not afraid of the world. He loves the world with all of its beauty and its brokenness. And he is now and has always been in the world, actively about the work of bringing his kingdom more fully into every corner of it. I have lots of little kids in my house. And so we have lots of Christmas books and several of them are written from the perspective of the animals that witnessed the birth. And I have realized that I really love those stories because the animals marvel at the fact that the great king is coming to them. The kind ox who just happens to be in the stable when Mary and Joseph show up with tired donkey just marvel. That the king of the universe came to his stable. The mice go all over the town, collecting all the animals in town to bring him to see that the king of the universe is being born in Bethlehem. When has anything ever happened in Bethlehem? Our God 
although he is worthy of the grandest temple, chooses instead to inhabit the humble places. He chose to appear to Moses in a burning bush. The specifications that he gave to Israel for the dwelling place that he would have in their midst were specifications for a tent with a dirt floor. And these humble, ordinary things became holy because God was there. Rather than taking up residence in a glitzy temple, God in Jesus chose to inhabit a teenage virgin's womb. He chose to come as a peasant baby born in the time-worn stable. He chose to live as a poor carpenter, recruiting blue-collar workers to be his followers. And this shouldn't be a surprise. God has always delighted in raising up the underdog. Christ's lineage is full of them. David is just one of many. He was the youngest son. He was a shepherd out in the field, and yet God chose him to be the greatest king of Israel. And if you go down through Jesus' lineage, you see all sorts of crazy, questionable characters. Don't feel bad about your families ever again. (laughs) Jesus makes it clear in his teachings that anytime we encounter someone who is hungry or in need, and we care for them, we are on holy ground. Because Christ dwells in the humble places. And the first generation church took this quite seriously. So that a custom developed of keeping the stranger's room. And the idea was that you would have a room available so that any stranger who came through asking for shelter could stay there. Not because the one asking for shelter might remind them of Christ but because that person was Christ. Christ is always with us, but most of the time he does not look like we expect. Because now it's the eyes of the store clerk or our fellow bus riders or the children. It's through their eyes that Christ gazes. It's with the feet of politicians and panhandlers on the street corner that he walks. And it's with the heart of anyone in need that he longs for shelter. I wish that Sarah and John were here because she's been posting about this book, Searching for Sunday, by Rachel Held Evans. Um, and she, she posted a quote. I've not read the book, but I've stolen the quote. I will just say that. Um, she says in her book, Searching for Sunday, the church is God saying, I'm throwing a banquet and all these mismatched, messed up people are invited. Here, have some wine. I love that. I want to read her book. So what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, it means that tomorrow as you gather with your family, with friends, as you receive gifts, as you eat sugary Christmas cinnamon rolls and open stockings, that God is there. Or perhaps your morning is not going to be quite as idyllic as that. Perhaps it's going to be like our house probably. I've told my parents and my aunt and uncle that they should just plan on bringing earplugs. Because it's going to be craziness. Overstimulated children melting down, making you want to crawl back under the covers. But God is there. As you ride the bus to work on Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever that's going to be, and as you mouth breathe to avoid smelling the person that happened to sit down next to you, God is there. Just as much as he is present in any of the holy places. 
In fact, these ordinary, unsavory, messed up places are the very places that God chooses to be. Because these are the places where we are. And our God is Emmanuel, God with us. 